You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 92 by Rudolf Steiner, The Occult Truths of Myths and Legends, 16 lectures, they are the listener's notes only, unfortunately, given in Berlin, Cologne, and Nuremberg, and translated by Paul King. This is Lecture 4, given in Berlin on the 15th of July, 1904, entitled Germanic Mythology. If we go back in the evolution of the human race, you know that we come to the root race of Atlantis, whose empire now lies at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. And if we go even further back, we come to the Lemurian root race. This is a race that you must think of as being completely different in its organization from our present root race, and even from the Atlanteans. The Lemurians lived on a continent that extended southward from the Indian subcontinent and Southeast Asia, and is today also the floor of an ocean. A few descendants of this population are still to be found in Australia. But where must we look for the second root race? Here we need to bear in mind that the third race, the Lemurians, already looked completely different from us, and also completely different from the Atlanteans, the fourth race. The Lemurians did not have what we would call memory, ideas, intellect. They only had this in a seminal condition. The second race, on the other hand, was gifted with a high spirituality, which was, however, not located in their heads, but can be pictured like a constant revelation from outside. The people of this second race were called the Hyperboreans. They inhabited the area around the North Pole, in Siberia, northern Europe, including the area that is now sea. And if you imagine this land with a kind of tropical temperature, you get a rough idea of what it was like at that time. It was originally populated by people who, as individuals, wandered about like beings in a dream. If they had been left to themselves, they would have been able to do nothing. There was wisdom, as it were, in the air, in the atmosphere. Only in the Lemurian age did a marriage take place between wisdom and the soul element. So, before this, we need to picture all mental or spiritual awareness in humankind as fog-like. Here were the seeds of the misty mind and the seeds of the light mind. The spirituality that emerged as seed in the suns of the fire mist, which still appears familiar to us, must be sought in the southern regions in Lemuria. In the regions north of us there lived peoples that had a dream consciousness that was clearer than Petri consciousness. Readers aside, Petri is spelled P-I-T-R-I, end of readers aside. In general, we must not imagine that the peoples living up there in the north stayed there. They undertook migrations southward, and these migrations still continued long into the times in which the Lemurian race emerged in the south. There was a northern Lemurian race, so to speak, and a southern Lemurian race. There were twelve migrations. 
These great migrations gradually brought the inhabitants of the different regions into contact. They also brought people into regions not far from our own, into regions we would call Central Germany, France, Central Russia, and so on. You need to be clear that we are talking here about a time when what we call the higher animals already existed. The Lemurians were described as a kind of giant, and they came into contact with the people coming from the north. Two races arose from this. There arose a race which in humanity's prehistory became the foundation of the Atlanteans. All these peoples mixed at that time in present-day Europe. We must not imagine this to be as simple as it seems when put into words. Now, from this mixture of Hyperboreans, Lemurians, and, later, also of Atlanteans, there emerged initiates who were different from the initiates we look on as our teachers today. These latter stem essentially from the south, from the Lemurian continent. In the north there developed what I would call a kind of mist world, and the three chief initiates that we must look for on this island of humanity were called even still in the time when Christianity was first emerging, Odin, Vili, and Ve. These are the three great Nordic initiates. They trace their origin in a very regular way, like the general populace, we could say, to the earthly realm, in which everything was contained in an unmixed state that is now distributed among all people. One could say that, in a way similar to the general populace, a race arose in this realm of the earth that was very dissimilar to present-day humanity. This race was governed by an all-wisdom. The teacher-priests called this all-wisdom the all-father. Two realms were spoken of, Niflheim and Muspelheim. Niflheim is the misty region of the north, the dawning mist-filled conditions of the Hyperborean root race, in contrast to Muspelheim. Legend tells of twelve rivers, which dammed themselves up and then turned to ice. From this arose a human race, represented by the giant Emir, and also an animal species, the cow Audumbla. From Emir arose the sons of the frost giants. Human beings who were endowed with reason emerged later. This accords also with titled The Secret Doctrine. And so the Germanic legend also relates that the offspring of Emir and Audumbla Odin, Vili, and they walked by the sea and created man. This is referring to the human beings of title The Secret Doctrine, who only arose later and who were endowed with reason. There is an ancient truth in this primordial Germanic legend. We are also told how later there were two great migrations from the Far East to the West and from the West to the East. We have to imagine that first of all there was a Celtic population which then established colonies. These original Celts were fully under the influence of their initiates. The initiates spread the original teachings about Odin, Vili, and Ve, and their priesthoods. The Celts had priests we call Druids. The Druids were centered in a great lodge, in the North Lodge. This is preserved in the legend of King Arthur in the Round Table. This lodge of the northern initiates really existed, the holy lodge of Caridwen, the white lodge of the north. 
Later it was called the Order of Bards. This lodge continued to exist into much later times and was only dissolved during the reign of Elizabeth I. Then the order withdrew from the physical plane entirely. This was the source of all Germanic sagas. All Germanic poetry can be traced to the original lodge of Caridwin, which was also called the Magic Cauldron of Caridwin. An individual who had the greatest influence right into the first centuries after the birth of Christ was the great initiate Meridin, who is preserved for us in the name of the magician Merlin. He was called, quote, the magician of the Northern Lodge, close quote. This is all contained in ancient Celtic mystery teachings. There you find an indication of what the initiates of the East had to give. And what was given back to them by the Celts was the Baldur myth, the myth of the god of light and the god of darkness. In this way, the initiates of the West gradually introduced these myths to the initiates of the East, with a well-considered intention of telling them something of significance. And in the belief that something must follow this, they added to this myth something that lay in the future, namely the fall of the gods. Baldur could not withstand this fall. So a second migration was prepared for after the twilight of the gods. It was said that a new Baldur would arise, and this new Baldur, in quotes, foretold to the people, is none other than Christ. These things could not develop at the same time in the north as they did in the south, in Greece, for example. In the north it was more the masculine gods that were revered, and in the south more the cultists of beauty. The whole northern element had a particular quality, that had long been present, but which at the same time was the seed of its undoing, its warlike nature. So in the north we have Odin, Vili, and Ve, and alongside them is Loki. Loki is the desire element, wish, and this gives the northern world a warlike nature, which has the element of the Valkyries within it. They ignite enthusiasm for battle. They are something the northern element always had. Loki was the son of desire. Hagen is a later form of the original Loki. And now a few words on the nature of initiates in those times. When someone was initiated, thereby becoming acquainted with spiritual powers, people expressed this by saying, quote, He has undertaken the journey into the realm of the good dead, into the elven realm, to Alfgard, so as to fetch the gold of Niflheim, close quote. Gold is the symbol of wisdom. Siegfried was the initiate of the old Germanic element at the time when Christianity was spreading. He was actually invulnerable, but had one spot where he could be wounded, because in this Nordic initiation Loki was still present, the god of desires in the form of Hagen. Hagen is the one who kills the initiate on his weak spot. In the Nibelung saga, Brunhilde is a similar figure, a female goddess similar to Pallas Athena in Greece. In the north she signifies the embodiment of the wild, slaying element of battle. In Siegfried you have the old Germanic initiate. The element of combat is expressed in old Germanic knighthood. Because it was predominantly a worldly element, worldly knighthood, even into the 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th century, had to trace its origins to Siegfried the Initiate. 
the origin of this class of knights, was the round table of King Arthur. This is where the great knights came from, or rather, those that wanted to become leading knights in the world had to go to King Arthur's round table. There they learned worldly wisdom. But eagerness for battle, the Loki-Hagen element, was mixed in with it. Something was to be particularly prepared in the Germanic element, which was able to come to expression most especially in the Nordic element. It was possible to prepare something here that was connected with the development of human beings on the physical plane. We know that what took place there was the descent of the highest principle to the physical plane. The form taken by this highest principle on the physical plane is the personal element. Thus the personal element developed personal prowess in combat, which was perhaps most highly developed in Hagen. Let's go back to the Lemurians. The Lemurians did not yet have what people today call love. Love between a man and a woman did not exist. There was certainly sexuality, but love was only later to sanctify sexuality. Love in its present meaning did also not yet exist among the Atlanteans. Only when the personal element had gained such importance could love develop. Toward the end of the Lemurian period, in certain regions, they had a curious system. The people living in a particular region were systematically divided into four groups. These four groups were so construed that an individual in the first group, let's call it group A, was never allowed to marry anyone from group B. Individuals in group A had to marry someone from group C, and people in group B, someone from group D. Personal inclination was thereby avoided. The personal element was excluded. This division was instituted in the service of all humanity. At that time it contained nothing of personal love. Only slowly did personal wishes develop in love, and this was the love that descended fully to the physical plane and was prepared for at that time. The farther back in time you go, the more you will find that eroticism plays a minor role. Even in the early period of Greek poetry it plays almost no role at all, but it played a particular role in German poetry of the Middle Ages. You see love portrayed there in two forms. You see it portrayed as courtly love, minna, and as desire. The blows of fate that Siegfried had to suffer were the result of the emergence of the personal element. Go back to Rome and you will find that the grounds for marriage were completely different. In Greece, too, personal love was unknown to begin with. It only emerged later. Then Christianity came to Central Europe. We saw that in Central Europe Christianity was introduced while still preserving what was there before. The idea of the figure of Balder slowly changed into the idea of the figure of Christ. This happened over a number of generations. Bonifaci thus found a ground already prepared. The legend of King Arthur and his round table gradually became associated with the legend of the Holy Grail. This association was brought about by an actual initiate of the 13th century, by Wolfram von Eschenbach. The Siegfried initiation was still the old initiation. Worldly knighthood still played a role here, as did the danger of being betrayed by the element of desire and narcissism. 
Only once one had overcome this element, once one had done away with it entirely, and had ascended from the principle of worldly knighthood to the principle of spiritual knighthood, could one attain to spiritual initiation. Eschenbach portrays this in Parsifal. To begin with, Parsifal is part of worldly knighthood. His father is killed by treachery on a crusade to the east. Behind this is the fact that his father was indeed seeking for higher initiation. But because he still had in himself the element of the old initiation, he was betrayed. Parsifal's mother, Herzelida, tried to keep him away from the physical plane. She puts a fool's cap on his head. Parsifal is, nevertheless, caught up in the stream of worldly knighthood and comes to the court of King Arthur. That Parsifal is destined for the Christian stream is indicated by the fact that he comes to the castle of the Holy Grail. He has been given an important lesson, not to ask too many questions. This signifies nothing other than finding the point of inner stillness, of having inner tranquility and peace, and to stop going around the outer world full of curiosity. So Parsifal doesn't ask any questions because he wishes to gain access to the castle. And so, initially, he is rejected. But then he does eventually come to the ailing Amfortas. He is taken higher by Christian initiation. No matter where you open Wolfram von Eschenbach's book, you find everywhere that he was an initiate. He joined together these two legend cycles because he knew that what we call the union of the Arthur Lodge with the Grail Lodge had already taken place. The Arthur Lodge has merged completely into the Grail Lodge. The end of Lecture 4